What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In today's episode, we bring you part two of our partnership with the Swedish publishing house and ideas forum, Free Tanker, exploring the philosophical and political implications of AI, virtual reality, and the mystery of consciousness. Part one of this event was released in our last episode and is available now for all our listeners. Do take a listen to that first if you can. This event took place in May 2023 in Stockholm. Thank you, David. Extremely interesting. Please sit down actually there because now I'm going to invite two more guests up on stage to discuss. I've asked two other thinkers and researchers to join us to discuss David's presentation here. The first guest is a professor of scientific visualization and the director of the Wallenberg AI, Autonomous Systems and Software Program, also called WASP. Please welcome Anders Jindemann. My second guest from Stanford University, he's an interdisciplinary ethics fellow there, working on the moral and political philosophy of artificial intelligence. Please welcome Henry Kugelberg. <laughs> okay, first of all, Anders, you, you are leading the, the project WASP. That I'm just thinking of Lisbeth Salander's <laughs> hacker network in the Millennium series. Right. That's the same name, but I guess you do other stuff there. What is WASP? WASP is by far the largest research program ever in the history of Sweden, mm. funded by the Knut and Alice Wallenberg Foundation. It's a national program, and we have the amazing sum of about six billion Swedish kroners until 2031 to graduate about 600 PhDs on the national level, and I would say more than 400 of them are experts on AI. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge effort that goes into that program. Fantastic. Do you think that can put Swedish sort of in the research front on the, in this field, or are we forever behind China? <laughs> it's a, an extremely fast-moving field in yeah. the world, but I think we put Sweden on the map. I think we put Sweden in a position to have a voice in the very important work that's going on right now in terms of developing regulatory frameworks at the European level. We have our own, for the first time, we have our own Swedish language model, the GPT-3 model that we trained on one of the supercomputers in the, in the WASP family. So I think we have a, a lot of things that we have done to, I would say, not only catch up, but also be an important player at the international level. That sounds great. Hendrik, before we go into to discuss David's keynote speech, can you just explain to us what is the moral and political philosophy of AI? That's what you do research on. What is that? So it's a great question. Dave brought up some of the, those issues, the kind of wider the social issues are related to the wider infrastructure, the wider systems that kind of we see these technologies being built in. The political issues, I think, are numerous. So all kinds of questions related to the biases these systems have, how we should mitigate those biases, if and when it's permissible to outsource human decision-making to artificial decision-making, if a bureaucratic machinery can use AI systems to make decisions. So all kinds of questions like this. Mm, okay, extremely interesting. That's what we're going to talk about. Okay, let me ask you, Anders, first. Just what is your reflections on what you heard from David here? What kind of 
ideas and thoughts came to your mind. It's amazing to listen. Also, I had the privilege to, to read the book, and, and it's amazing to be taken on such a journey through philosophy and with my own background in physics and connecting philosophy to physics and with all the references to science fiction that we all grew up on as well. And it brings back memories of reading Gödel Escherbach and yeah. Roger Penrose, The Emperor's Mind. Yeah. It's really in that spirit. So I thoroughly enjoyed both the presentation and the book. That's wonderful to hear. And I know that you were also a candidate for being the first astronaut in Sweden, but you didn't take that. It was Christy Fuglesang. No, but was, you came close. No, he, he was better. And he was, you know, <laughs> yeah. But I do fly virtually in space now. You have? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. In <laughs> what kind of system? We build, we're building dome theatres. And maybe you've seen, just to, on yeah. the other side here, Techniska Museum, we're building a big dome theatre. Yeah. And we have a piece of software that we call Open Space which is actually a virtual tour of the whole universe. We can fly from centimeter resolution on Earth all the way out to Big Bang, 13.8 wow. billion light years out, and opening up in December. So everyone's invited to come there, and I will be there to talk about the universe. That's wonderful. And that, according to David, is real. So don't be of course, too yeah. sad I mean, that just you at, didn't. Uh, there's a restaurant at the end of the universe. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> Hendrik, what came to your mind during this speech? No, so I also had the great privilege of reading the book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I also I appreciated that you touched on some of these more social and political questions at the end. I think they go very deep. I think it's a, the kind of techno-philosophy approach that you lay out. I think that can't abstract away from who will be the most likely actors to build these kinds of systems. And as you said, already the social media companies set the terms for our democratic deliberations to some extent. And if they would have the power to, or if we would spend basically all our lives on there, then in a sense they would set the terms for all of our everyday interactions, for how we, when we go for coffee with a friend, when we call our grandma. And of course that would be a tremendous power to have and it would come with, I think, very worrying implications for broader society. So I think that was very good. But can I ask you, David, if, you, if we skip the question of whether we are all in a simulation, for now at least, and just talk about the virtual worlds that already exist, that you can go in and interact with other people online, if those worlds are real in the sense that you argue for, would you say that if I steal something from you, my avatar steals something from your avatar in that world, should I be prosecuted not only in that virtual world, but also in the real world for doing that? It's a great question. And actually, courts have begun to address this question really? already. I think there was a case in the Netherlands, maybe three or four years ago now, involving a game. Maybe it was RuneScape, where somebody stole within the virtual world some kind of treasure that someone had been to a lot of trouble to, to acquire. And I can't remember what happened, whether it was a civil case, maybe a lawsuit where they were sued for some form of theft. And the court found that this was actually a case of theft. The, I think the perpetrator argued that, come on, this couldn't really be theft because there's, no there's no real object there. There was nothing to, nothing to steal. It all happened inside this fiction. And so I think the court found that somehow that a real digital object was stolen and this person should be held responsible and maybe compensate the, the previous owner. So I think this, this kind of just resonates with the idea that what goes on in these virtual worlds is real and on a par. And maybe even more seriously, there are, there are assaults. People experience the equivalent of sexual assault inside virtual worlds. And yeah. it's, it's really quite traumatic for people who, who undergo it. And I think there's, the sense is not that this, this is merely a fiction. The sense is this is something that really happened. And now it's got to the point where now when Meta, for example, builds their virtual worlds, every avatar has something like, by default, a four-foot boundary around it so that people can't enter other people's personal space. So I think this is bringing out that, yeah, even if these are digital worlds, these are real conscious beings that people are happening to, and what happens inside a virtual world is real. But I'm thinking, shouldn't the, the punishment for doing a crime be in the virtual world then? Because otherwise, it's mix these worlds. You could imagine that if you steal something in the virtual world, you would go to prison in the virtual world, which means you can't play this for a year. 
there are, yeah, there are practical problems with making that work, right? Okay. Someone can always take off the headset, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how much of an incentive is this kind of punishment going to be? Okay, we're going to send you to the virtual prison. <laughs> okay, what do you do? You, you log out of the virtual world, you re-enter as a new character. Yeah, or, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's yeah. probably not going to be a very great incentive for now. At least for now, I think, laws of the non-virtual, it is very important that out in, the, out in base reality, we have laws which apply to what mm. happens in the virtual world. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And with your background in physics, how does it resonate for you to say that the virtual world, in a, from a philosophical point of view, really is real? It sounds like mathematical Platonism in a sense, but applied to VR. What do you think about it? From my perspective, having gone through a couple of waves of uh, virtual reality hype, being disappointed yeah. over and over again, and the sort of limitations of the technology, yes, we are getting better, but we are still not there. We're orders of magnitude away from doing real virtual reality in the notion that David's talking about in terms of a perfect virtual reality setup. So we're not there. But, but quite soon. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, okay. There, there are some really fundamental limitations. And yes, if we connect straight into the brain with brain interfaces, and then we might get there. But there are some other very fundamental limitations in terms of the laws of physics and how we can simulate the virtual world that I, coming from a physics point of view, and that's also mentioned in the book about the limitations of how much energy do we actually have in the universe. Can we really simulate the universe within the universe? The second law of thermodynamics, mm. the entropy in the system, all of those things. Does it really make sense to have a global simulation that's mimicking the real world? Can we do that? All of those limitations are going through in my head as a physicist and looking at quantum entanglement and all those things as well. Yeah. So those are limitations. But addressing your question, I think really what I think about the virtual reality nature is if we put aside the technical development for a second and look at what is it that is creating that notion of immersion and presence for a human being. And I think you can accomplish that with other means that are not necessarily as technologically advanced. You can get immersed in simple media like a book, right? And the narrative and the agency become so important in that. So that's actually a question I have. Would you consider the characters in the book as being real just because you, we would perceive that as being very engaged with those characters? Are they real as well? That's interesting. Do the characters inside a novel have the kind of causal powers that we do. Inside a virtual world, we got, it's not just we can do one thing, we can actually right. do many things, and that's very important to things being real. We've got multiple choices, things can be simulated in multiple ways. In a book, it's mostly as if the character's moving down one path, so I'm not sure they have the genuine causal powers that people do in a simulated virtual world. On the other hand, maybe, how about an interactive novel? Yeah. Where, but this where, is where people get to go down different yeah. pathways. Yeah, but, but there's the notion of agency. That yeah. You don't talk very much about that in the book. So what's the role of agency for these characters? And how important is that? Yeah, I really, I, the next chapter I would have written if I had, the book is already rather <laughs> thick, you can see. But right. basically everyone is focused on a different philosophical theme. Some are knowledge, some are reality, some are value. If I had one more, one more chapter, it would have been on free will. Okay. And I wish I'd written that chapter, actually, because it's so relevant here. It's actually relevant to many of the ethical and political issues in existing virtual worlds. If you're mm. constantly being manipulated by these corporations who control the world, do we have genuine agency or genuine free will? I mean, some people have argued, the philosopher Robert Nozick argued that we should not enter certain kinds. He talked about entering an experience machine where everything would be wonderful, you'd have great experiences of being the best in the world, in your field, and so on. But he said you shouldn't enter this experience machine because nothing is real. And I think his central argument, his central consideration was you would not have genuine agency, you don't have genuine free will, you'd just be living out life according to a script. And so I think for a meaningful life, we're not just living out a script, we have to make choices. As you say, we have to have agency. I would argue we can have that in a virtual world, even if I enter now into, say, Second Life or the world of, say, of Minecraft or something, mm -hmm. I, can, I can make choices. I can interact with some people and not with other people. It's still up to me. I have agency. Now, does a character in a book 
if I'm reading the book, do those words on the page have agency? Is there, there's a fiction where they have agency, but I would say they only have agency in the fiction. But in some sense, in, in your imagination, you're there, you can dream about the characters, and you can interact with them. They become real, they get their own life, right? You're right, dreams yeah. are interesting, and yeah. dreams are like little virtual worlds that we run ourselves mm -hmm. on our brains every night. And they're a little bit like virtual worlds. They're much more fragmented, and they're also created by us, so they're not out there independent of us in the way that a virtual world is. But a dream is an interest. You might also argue that when the author writes the book in their imagination, they're conjuring up so many scenarios that, that it could well be that in the author's imagination there's a virtual reality. So I agree there's a kind of a spectrum of reality here. Can I ask you, when the virtual reality systems that you can, as a consumer, buy to your home, when they get better and better, do you think, Hendrik, do you think that there is any risk that it will have mental effects on you if you live if you go into these worlds for hours and experience things did you see any problem with that it's a genuinely that's a genuinely interesting question i guess it depends on how good they are right so if they are truly indistinguishable from reality then presumably it would just be as if we are in reality so i guess but, it's but still in the kind of, when we're moving mm. towards that mm. i don't know so i don't know about the latest statistics about how bad or good it is to play too many video games or whatever. But surely it's, to me, as a non-psychologist doing some hobby psychology, does seem to be worrying if we're... Mm. So I guess the kind of definition would be if we're leaving, if we're not fulfilling our duties in the normal world, then that looks as if it's a problem. Because those systems can already uh, take over your, your impulses, emotional impulses. I don't know if any of you have tried this VR thing where you're on the top, on the roof of a skyscraper in New York, and there is this plank, planka, that you <laughs> walk out on. I've done this, and you walk through the room, and you're in a room, but you have this helmet on, and you walk out on this planka, and you see the, the cars down, uh, down there, Long down there, and when you walk, and then the plank ends. And I couldn't force myself to walk over that line. I could not, even though I completely intellectually, of course, knew that it was not a problem. And I couldn't do it. So in that sense, it already takes over your em emotions. Can this be dangerous, do you think, David? Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. It's interesting, actually. The first time I ever did this, I just... You have yeah, tried it. I stepped off the plane very gingerly. and said, okay, <laughs> the floor is still there. And I went there. And, okay, it's okay. Now I walk on air. 
But then I tried the other one, Richie's Plank Experience, which, is, which you actually get on the quest. Then you step off the plank, and they're very cruel. When you step off the flank, you tumble down, you fall to the, you fall from the skyscraper down to the ground. Only in the virtual world, yeah, yeah. you're still fine in the. But it's a rather <sighs> cruel experience. To, I'm sweating to go just through. thinking about this. It's really scary to do this. Is it dangerous? Just say, for example, you get. People worry about, for example, transfer. Just say, uh, you know, you get used to stepping off planks in virtual worlds, and you realize that it's uh, that is totally fine. So just say now you start stepping off planks. In the, in the physical world, you'll get in a lot of trouble. It seems that people actually don't transfer terribly much from one reality to the other, but I think it's really vitally important that when you're in VR, it's always very clear that you're in VR. And when you're not in VR, it's always very clear that you're not in VR. But right now, it's, always, it's usually pretty obvious. So we perceive VR as virtual. As it gets better and better, it might get harder to distinguish. I think it's going to be very important there's always going to be some kind of marker there. Yeah, but it, you know. and it also seems to be very individual how you react on that. I, my 13-year-old son did the same thing. He just walked. He didn't care at all. <laughs> okay, that's right, yeah. It's extremely different reaction from me. Kids find it, by the way, totally obvious, I think, that virtual reality is genuine reality. They're used to hanging out <laughs> in these virtual worlds. And yeah. yeah, of course it's real. And it's, it's related to some of the points you made earlier, that certain kinds of experiences in VR could be as traumatic, presumably, as experience in, in the real world. So in that sense, the question maybe isn't, is it bad or traumatic to be there? It depends on what kinds of things people get up to when they are in VR, just as same as what they do in the non-virtual reality. One of my favorite science fiction books, I, I don't think you referenced this mm. one, it's The Red Dwarf, the British science fiction television series that was turned into a book. There is a computer game in that book, and it's called BTL. It stands for better than life. <laughs> and the problem with the BTL game is that it's so good that no one ever wants to leave mm. the game. So they actually starve to death <laughs> in the real world. And it's a, a comedy because there's this green exit sign in the virtual world that you can say exit all the time, but no one ever wants to exit. So they get stuck in a black hole uh, sitting there. So it's funny. That could, yeah. that could be a problem if people yeah. <laughs> spend, rather spend the time in VR. I actually called my first visualization laboratory BTL. <laughs> better than life. <laughs> That's another version of Reality Plus, I guess. Right. Life Plus. But, Hendrik, we will wait until after the break to talk about whether AI can be conscious or not, but I think we all agree that they will behave like they're being conscious long before they, if and when they actually get conscious. They will, they, people will react to them as if they are conscious. Do you think that this will create a lot of, what you call it, moral movements, saying, oh, we cannot treat them like this, even long before they, they eventually get conscious? It's, will that be a problem? So I think you're right that people will, already I think people treat them, if not as conscious agents, but mm. at least as if they are agents. So they have, and I think that's one of the problems with this kind of technology, with the kind of the way the chat interface is set up. It's set up in such a way that we are, should be made to believe that this is an agent we're interacting with, mm -hmm. that the answer it gives us has a kind of authority. And of course, oftentimes the answers does have a certain kind of authority, but it isn't really responding to us as an agent. One example of this, so I saw someone, there's this debate in universities about cheating using these systems, right? Yeah. And someone said, oh, I have a perfect workaround to this. I just paste the essay into the chat box and ask, did you write this essay? And so they asked the GPT-3, did you write the essay? And it says, yes, I did. But of course, it doesn't have any way of knowing if it did. So that is treating it as if it is an agent, but it actually isn't. If people, it's an interesting question, what kinds of things will follow from what sort of reactions people will have. I guess we've already seen, so Blake Lemoyne, for instance, he is, yeah. I guess, advocating for, really, like, I'm not, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but some sort of rights, I think, he argued for giving to the Google's AI system. So uh, in a sense, I guess it's already happening. Yeah. Which is, I think it's a natural response to this part of when we have this kind of empathetic impulse to something. I think it's a natural response to want to treat it with dignity and respect and these kinds of things. And I guess that isn't as much of a problem as the sort of negative things we could use these systems for. So I'm not so worried about people advocating for rights. I'm more worried about people using these systems for bad purposes. And what could that 
be? Anyone here, what do you think, what problems will we see in the near future coming from AI and VR use? Henrik is the expert. I think the f one of the fundamental problems is just the ability to process an incredible amount of data in a very short time. If we abstract away from the, we can be away from the kind of natural language processing, large language model systems, just the machine learning in general, I think, can take data points that before just looked like random data points scattered about a person and form a very coherent picture of this person, all kinds of things, and then you could use it to manipulate us in all kinds of ways. So that is a worry way before these systems become conscious. It's a worry that states should have this power. It's a worry that private corporations should have this power. And the question is, I think it's an open question what they will use it for, but the fact that they have this power is worrying in itself, even if they never use it, just that they have this. So in political philosophy, there is this idea that even just someone having this kind of power over you and they're never deploying it, it's still dominating in an objectional way. Yeah, of course. We've already had a few years now of AI algorithm curating content on, in social media, on Facebook and so on, curating content individually, so you get this kind of news that is right for you. And, and we know what that led us to. It led us to Brexit, it led us to Donald Trump be winning the election, it led us to a lot of conspiracy theories thriving on the internet and so on. And I'm thinking very soon we will have not only AI curation, we will have AI create, creation of content as well. Because during these years, it, or the content was at least created by humans, but it was curated by AI. Now AI will do both. And I guess it will produce content a million times faster than troll fabrics and humans can do. How do you think about that? What are the consequences? Just wait until the people you encounter on the internet are largely AI systems. It already happens, exactly. right? There are a lot of bots yeah. out there, but wait till those bots get to, get to human level intelligence and wait till basically everyone, every second person you encounter, say in a virtual world, is, is themselves an AI creature. I do think it's going to be very important that we always know when we're interacting with AI systems and when we're interacting with, uh, with humans. But how can we know that? I think we're going to have to, people are going to, <laughs> people are going to, I think, demand mechanisms by which we can know. We should always demand that when you're in VR, there's a flag you're in VR. We should demand that when you're interacting with an AI, there's a flag that you're in AI. But I do think that probably not everyone, likewise for the corporations are going to control so much of these worlds that we're used to having a news feed that's cultivated by a corporation, wait till the whole world around us is cultivated by a corporation. It may well be that you'll be able to pay for to enter a virtual world that's relatively free of manipulation, where all the people you encounter are guaranteed to be humans, except in special cases where you always know what's what. But you'll probably have to pay for that. There is always going to be free, just as there's free social media, there's going to be free virtual worlds, but you know what they say, when it's free, that means, that means you're the product. Exactly. <laughs> but in, in the, yeah, the free worlds are going to be precisely the ones in which you're going to be manipulated and which you're not going to know. But if we all live in a simulated world, does it matter whether it's an AI you interact with or a human? It depends on if the AI is a genuine autonomous <laughs> AI that's, that's behaving of its own free will, then I would argue in principle you can have very meaningful interactions with an AI. But if this AI is just a creation of a corporation put there to manipulate you in, in certain directions or a political party or whatever, then no. If I can give a view on, on the AI perspective, I think that from my point of view, I'm less afraid of the development of the AI itself, but more of the general availability of the data. And so I would, the debate out there is about the fear of general intelligence, artificial intelligence, but I think it's the data that is, in, is available to that AI is the scary part. And the sort of the lack of transparency and openness about some of these AI methods that are being developed. And if you look at the sort of the generative AI that's taking off at this, this time now, I think that's where we are seeing the really big disruptive change. And we humans, we have to get really get used to the fact that we don't have the, we don't have the monopoly anymore. And some of those things that we have seen as genuinely human qualities will be transferred. But that has happened in the past as well.
in mm. other technologies has been disruptive in the same manner as generative AI is at this point. Mm. But it, it's fundamentally going to change many ways in human life. I'm thinking it, ha it has to be regulated some way. I know that this big G7 meeting in Hiroshima right now uh, are discussing regulations for this, but I'm, I'm just wondering, of course, the sort of serious, honest states will follow that, but there's a lot of other states out there who doesn't really care about that. Hendrik, what's the solution to this? You're the one who's researching this. Yeah, no, I think it's... I think the only thing we can do is to come up with very good regulation and then try to export it as well. Mm. I think I agree with you, it's a genuinely hard pro. I think the EU is the place to start. I think the EU has already done some good things in this domain. I think the EU AI Act is a good start. The US has its own problems with getting regulation through in the political systems. But if we can get a good EU regulation going, I think that's a good start. And then with all of these other countries, I think it's a genuinely hard yeah. problem. But as long as... So it, it depends on what the regulation would look like, right? I think there is always going to be bad actors. The best we can... All we can hope for is to do as best we, as we can and then try to put pressure. And if they, if they are doing genuinely bad things, we can imagine things like sanctions or things like this to mm. put pressure. But I think that's way down the line. And we have to imagine very bad systems before going that far. Because we all remember the childhood of internet where people talked about information wants to be free that on everybody's lips and the declaration of the indep uh, independence of cyberspace from 1996. We by, all remember that, right? By the grateful, the guitarist of the Grateful Dead. John Perry Barlow, yes, exactly. No, was he the guitarist, the lyricist? Or a lyricist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. No. But I remember that so well. I was in the in uh, internet industry at that time, and we all had this very light view of what internet would be, and empowering people, and against authoritarian states, and so on. And now it seems to be the other way around. It's now, all taken over by the platforms, <laughs> the corporations. Yes, yeah. yes. And the next uh, election in US will probably be AI campaigned a lot. It will be AI ca campaigns running the business. How should we teach people to think critically about that? Today we tell our children, remember that not everything you read on the internet is true, but soon we will have to tell them, remember that almost everything you read on the internet is false. It's not really what we hoped for, is it? I think we're underestimating the capability of the next generation to be to develop that kind of literacy. Do you think the, so? Uh, the cr critical towards sources and uh, on the internet that deal with social media to some extent. And, and yes, there, is, there, um, there are new challenges appearing with all sorts of various deep fakes that are appearing. But, but I think the, uh, there will be the development of that kind of, just as we have a visual literacy that's developing in my field, we will have AI literacy as well. I think yeah, deep fakes have been around, you know, fakes of different kinds have been around for a long time, but even quite sophisticated ones have been around for a while. And it's interesting, I think people, people do get taken in, but I think people have also developed a sense of when something is likely to be a fake. If it's coming from these sources on social media, well, great, just don't take it too seriously. Maybe if it appears on this reliable news site, then that's something you can take seriously. I agree that mm. critical thinking is very important, but I don't think it's, I think, People can take philosophy classes in critical thinking where we, where, we, where we think about this stuff. But I think people will get used to knowing when, develop, develop a sense of when you can trust something and when you can't. It's just going to be so central. These deep fakes are going to be so central in all of our lives. I think it's going to become second nature after a while. Don't trust that. It's the mm. unreliable source. But will we go back to this printed morning paper from a, a re reliable media house? And that's the only thing we can trust. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Certain websites, maybe. <laughs> yeah, okay. When it comes to the social aspect of this, do you think that sort of a wide-scale adoption of VR and AI will change social interactions for the next generation. What do you think? People are already, those people are already falling in love with their, their AI bots. Yeah. What's this, this replica? You can get your very own, very own replica to interact with and maybe, uh, maybe fall in love with. I gather they, they turned off the special flirtation mode in, in replica. They're disappointed 
many people. But yeah, movies like her are now starting to starting to come to in life. In Japan, you can yeah. even get married with this digital person on the screen. I saw that in a TV program. If it wasn't fake news, I don't know. <laughs> For now, I don't think replica is conscious. So I think this is probably a case of imputing, say, consciousness and mm. mentality to a creature that doesn't have it. But as the AI gets better and better, who's to say that 20 years from now, we might have actually human-level conscious AI, which for some people, the companionship can be valuable. You don't want, it, you want this to be done again knowingly. If someone, say, falls in love with a computer program and it turns out the whole time to have been a philosophical zombie, there's something rather tragic about that. Yes, definitely. Hendrik, what do you think? Will it change our social interactions in a profound way? Yes, I do believe so. Just as the introduction of all kinds of technology changes into the telephone, FaceTiming, all of these kinds of things, of course, changes things. The interesting and hard question is how it will change things. And I think that is genuinely hard to predict. I think as we're, I think two different things. So the kind of VR interactions, if they become as good as, if it genuinely is like sitting in a room with your friends, and when you have the, the Facebook, the company formerly known as Facebook's version of it clearly isn't like this, right? It looks like a very old computer game from like the... But I'm, if it, I'm counting on Apple to get it right. It says they're going after the social market with their new headset, so well, we'll see. Let's hope so, because... We'll see soon, yeah. yeah. Three weeks or something, yeah. yeah. So if it becomes, if, if this could have just as it, like, if this could have been virtual reality, I think that would fundamentally change how we, how we behave. Otherwise, it would just be incremental, small steps. Maybe we'll go out a little less and spend more time with these things. But if it would be like this, I think very few people, because then you could just hang out from the comfort of your home, and this is what probably people would do. I, I think there's hope. I think there's hope for humans in the sense that interactions with virtual systems is going to be generally available and very cheap. So it's going to be a luxury to actually have the human interaction, and I think we will cherish that, and we will really enjoy when we meet IRL. So I think there's going to be room for human interaction in the future as well. I would say IPL in physical life, <laughs> right? <laughs> IVL in virtual life, right? But what about what about the issue of these AI algorithms being biased? I read something that. We had this system that, I don't remember what it was, but it was biased towards racism, for example, because mm. it had been training on a lot of data that had that kind of tendency. So the system became racist. If, if authorities or companies start to use algorithms when they look at job applications, for example, how do you ensure that it doesn't fall into those bias issues? Yeah, I think that is one of the... So that's usually those systems are predictive AI systems as opposed to generative. So they take a bunch of data and then they predict, they give you a kind of score. Will you... So the classic example of racism in these things is like it's a program called Compass. It's about assessing the risk of recidivism for people who are... They are like the suspicion is that they've committed a crime and then they're going to predict if this person is going to commit another crime. And that system turned out to be extremely racist. Black defendants got a much higher risk score than white defendants and these kinds of things. So that's obviously extremely concerning. And I think the, this becomes even more concerning when it's often the case that when these systems are deployed, their kind of outputs are very... It looks like a factual output, right? So it just gives you a score. Yes, this person is likely to uh, recidivate. And the worry then is that people, because we're just people, we're going to say, see this output and say, oh, this is the truth because the machine told me, and then we're going to follow its advice. And the worry is that we have these incredibly biased systems, and often without, so the, the people who are subjected to these systems often don't have any recourse. So there's often no way of complaining, there's no way of trying to get a human to overturn it. I think there's a case in France, they had a system like this with welfare payments or something like this. And both the kind of bureaucrat and the person, they saw, they both could see that these are obvious errors in the system, but there was no way of kind of overturning it because of the trust. I think there's a kind of big worry about trusting these systems too much because they give the impression of being objective, impartial, neutral, and these kinds of... And we have a huge problem. More and more training of AI algorithms is done using synthetic data. 
So you actually generate data, you're not taking data from the real world. So you have an algorithm or even an AI system that's generating data. And the bias that you have in that synthetic data is then reinforcing itself. So we have to be very careful oh, when yeah. we design synthetic data. And those biases that Henrik's talking about is sometimes originating from the fact that we are ourselves generating fake data that we're putting into the systems as well. And that's a huge research domain in, in that area. That's super important. And even without kind of this, so Amazon, the company, they, had a, they wanted to hire new people and they, had a, they built an algorithm for assessing CVs. And then they just took, looked at all the people working for Amazon, took their CVs and they, they decided, oh, we want people like this because obviously they're succeeding at Amazon. And it turns out that a significant proportion of the people in technical roles at Amazon, they're men. And so people, even if you had the kind of on your CV, it said part of the women's chess club or something like this, then they would be get given a lower score because no one else at Amazon had been part of the women's chess club. So yeah. I think we have to be very careful with these kinds of systems because right. they pick up these correlations that obviously aren't the correlations that we're looking for. David, from, a philosophical, from your view, philosophical view, who is responsible for a decision that is made by an AI? <clears throat> right now, I think it's <clears throat> primarily the creators of the, of the AI system, sometimes the user. Sometimes with these language models, a user can manipulate it in different ways and they can bring out, for example, many of these systems are just, you train them that language model and maybe it's got natural biases because it's trained on all this biased and racist text. Then the companies try very hard to, to, to do what's called reinforcement learning through human feedback to try and improve their responses and make them less biased and less racist, but still they can be manipulated in certain ways so those, uh, so those biases come out. So I think users carry some responsibility, but obviously I think the primary locus right now has to be the people who build the models, have to build them in responsible ways. But as the systems get better and more sophisticated, eventually a time will come when we're going to have to hold the systems responsible. I don't think it's the case yet. We don't really hold, because we don't regard the systems, AI systems as conscious beings or as agents, as beings with free will. We don't ever hold them directly responsible, except maybe in a mechanical way. Oh, it did this, we have to, we have to fix it. But as it gets to the point in a decade or two where these beings start to look more and more as if they're conscious and agents, we're probably going to have to develop a whole new category of responsibility for recognizing these systems as responsible. And that has precedence in the law. For example, at a certain point, we started holding corporations responsible, when previously we just held individuals yeah. responsible. There's a whole, came to be a whole new era of law for, area of law for holding corporations responsible. And I think yeah. eventually we're going to have to do the same for so, yeah. AI systems. Because I'm thinking already now we have to deal with, uh, for example, self-driving cars. That is quite soon a common thing. We have to decide what kind of ethics you should program into that car, because should it be a utilitarian Ethics, for example, to, to, should the car minimize human damage in every situation, for example? Say that it's driving on a bridge and it has to choose, by, choose between driving over a whole family or drive over, down into the water and just kill the passenger. You saved five people, killed one. No one will travel with that kind of car, of course. How to deal with that? So I think the way... So I live in San Francisco and... To my surprise, so I didn't know this before coming there, but there are, the streets are filled with self-driving cars there. So basically, every tenth car or something is self-driving. It's perfect. It's, it, it really is crazy. And you can even get a self-driving taxi there now. So they're already being deployed at a somewhat large scale. And what uh, ethics is programmed yeah, so into what, them? I think what they're doing is that they're just training them. So they, they aren't really programming ethics into them. So I think they have quite sophisticated machine learning systems. So they're just practicing a lot to try to make them safe and predict the kind of safe behavior. But the problem with this is that, so there was, I think Uber had a trial with a self-driving car and it, it collided with a pedestrian who unfortunately died. And I think the yeah. reason for this was that they had assumed that pedestrian would, pedestrians would always cross the road at the crossing and this person didn't and the, the car was like what is going on what is this object in the road this should be the only cars there so this in combination with the fact that this human was 
leading their bicycle, so they wasn't riding on it. And the car was like, is this a bicycle? Is this a person? Is this a bicycle? Is... And they got some kind of overload, and it, it crashed. <laughs> so I think these kind Stack of... overflow. Yeah, it's... So this is the worry, right? That... that was also a case where there was an operator for the car that was not paying full attention, I, so I, exactly responsibility right. is distributed here somehow. Over yeah. The corporation, the operator. Yeah. I don't know, maybe not the car yet. That's coming. Okay, a final question before the break that actually in a little way leads into the discussion after the break. Have you seen the cinema movie Megan right now? You have seen it? You have not, not seen it? No. Maybe it some in the audience has seen it. <laughs> okay, I'll give you the brief story here. It's about a 10-year-old girl who has this very tragic accident. Both her parents are killed in a car accident, so she moves in with her mother's sister and she is working uh, developing robots. And so she gets this young girl, a robot, to, to keep her company, and that is Megan. And she looks like a little girl as well, but she's an AI. And she's programmed with the goal of making sure that the human girl doesn't get hurt physically or mentally, emotionally. And that sounds wonderful. The problem is <laughs> it, it, the methods she's using, she protects this young girl to every cost. And obviously that becomes... It's a horror movie, actually. <laughs> you should see it. It's, it's really good. It's basically, a, it's basically a very dark version of Ishiguro, Clara and the Sun, mm. right? Yes, which, it is. Which is yes. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So my question is, we skipped the question where, whether they are conscious or not, but if we can imagine a very sophisticated AI that you can program with a certain goal, how do we make sure that the AI doesn't use every mean, even the really dangerous means, to achieve that goal. It's Isaac Asimov's robotics laws in a way, but yeah, he also wrote a couple of novels where it, they didn't work, these robot laws. What do you yeah, think I mean, about People that? call this the problem of alignment, right? Yes. Aligning what the AIs do with human interests. And it turns out this is very difficult. At the very least, you want to make sure that the AI doesn't pursue any goals monomaniacally, like just protect this person. The classic example is, from Bostrom is the AI that just wants to create paperclips. And we'll yeah. do it. <coughs> anyway, anything gets in the way of creating paperclips. Sorry, human beings, you're taking up space that can be taken up by, by paperclips. paperclips. <laughs> At the very least, you want to give an AI system sensible goals, where those goals are not monomaniacal, but include things like making sure that all humans are treated OK and remain autonomous and so on. But it's very difficult to program that into an AI system. We're not yet at the point where AI systems are powerful enough that I think this gets particularly problematic once you get to the point where AI systems are actually better at achieving their goals, more intelligent than humans, and thereby better at achieving their goals. Everything at that point is going to depend on how AI goals are specified. And yeah, and you can imagine, okay, you need to build in a whole lot of constraints, like not interfering with the autonomy, with autonomy of people. It's very hard to formalize that yeah, in an yeah, AI system. This I is why a lot of people right now are saying we need to go very slow on AI. Even Jeff Hinton, one of the, one of the gurus of contemporary artificial intelligence, said he's very worried about what happens once the AI yeah. systems reach human-level intelligence. And there's just not an obvious solution. There's no formula. You can, you can put in the guarantees that the AI systems... But we already have the, sort of the problem of the black box, as I understand it, that the programmers doesn't know how ChatGPT4 actually produces their answers. As, uh, Once there's machine learning, it gets even worse, actually, because you train them on a bunch of cases, yeah. and you rely, it to gem you rely on it to generalize to new cases. If you program your morality in from cases, Who's to say how it's going to generalize to far future cases? I read somewhere that the, pro the developers of ChatGPT4 did not expect it to be so good at writing computer code as it is. It obviously is fantastically good to, write, to, to, to produce computer code. I talked to a friend of mine who's a developer, a software development, he said he, it, it, what took him three days now takes him three hours because ChatGPT produces the, most of the stuff and then he just has to fine-tune it, basically. What I'm trying to say is that it seems that we already have these emergent phenomena that nobody really understands how they can achieve. Henrik and Anders, what's your 
I, I think it's pretty hopeless. Sorry? <laughs> I think it's pretty hopeless in terms of actually accomplishing that. Because we're not consistent ourselves, right? No. We take different decisions to, and talk about the trolley problem. And the brain is struggling. Different parts of the brain has different decisions and who wins in certain contexts. And it's that lacking contextual awareness and the cultural encoding that we carry with us that forms our rational decisions. It, what seems perfectly rational to one individual may seem irrational to another one, depending on which perspective you have on a particular situation. And to transfer that complexity to an AI system, I think is a mega challenge, mm. and it will require a long time before we actually get to that point. Mm. And not to mention all of these issues that we talk about with the liability, how we are transfer that to, to the machines. We're, we're quite forgiving when it comes to human error, but we're not so forgiving when it comes to machine error. And we can take errors in airplanes that ground a whole fleet of airplanes where mm. as a pilot makes a mistake and we say, oh, it's just human error, right? That's so we're very forgiving uh, when it comes to humans, but on the machine level to prevent those absurdities like you're talking about in the movie, I think we have a long ways to go. Henrik, you got the final word here. Well, so I think in the near term, the way I think the EU thinks about it is that we always, for high stakes decision, there needs to be a human being in the loop. But of course, quite soon, that might not be feasible. And mm -hmm. then I just, to echo what's been said, I think it's a, people have thought really hard about it. I still haven't seen like a convincing account of precisely how to do it. So maybe the answer is to try to not build these systems so quickly, move more incrementally, and hope that there is a way of aligning the values down the line, but I'm not sure what it would look like. Okay, extremely interesting. We could talk much more about this, of course, but we have to take a break. I say thank you to Henrik David and Anders very much. Thank you so much. <laughs>